This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. We built the national highway system in a matter of decades and, and shorter. It, this can easily be done, and it can be done in a decade. And we are just sort of lacking the footsie, the go-getting attitude that America had in the early 20th century. Somewhere around 1980, you all got amnesia for your ambition. But this is uh, completely doable. Hello, welcome to Mr. Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, quick announcements before we begin. We've got the AMA is open for another week to send in your questions if you want to hear me answer them. So that is Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Uh, and also the book tour for Why We're Polarized, which if you've not pre-ordered your copy, what are you waiting for? What a good moment to do it right now. <laughs> it really matters for books, actually. But also, I think you're going to be able to follow a bunch of what is coming a lot better if you actually have a copy of the book. Uh, and I'm excited for people to actually get to read it as opposed to it being this weird thing operating in like the forefront of my life and the background of all of my work for some time now. Just the idea that it will, I don't know, man, the, the, the experience of having to be on your own writing a book for years before anybody can see it is just, it's not how I work normally. <laughs> so I'm excited for it to become a real tangible artifact out in the world that people can hopefully learn from and definitely argue with me over. Anyway, point of all that was that uh, the book tour, or at least the first part of it, is now announced. It is up on whywerepolarized.com, or if it is easier to remember, ezrakline.com. You can go uh, get tickets for any, anything on the tour. Right now, we've just got uh, a bunch of the big cities on there. But the thing I would say is a bunch of these um, events are selling out or are going to sell out. So if you would like to come, Please go check it out. We've got events up in New York and D.C. and Boston and Seattle and Portland and L.A. and San Francisco. And so particularly if you're in one of those areas or one of the ones I maybe forgot, uh, go check it out. Again, that is why we're polarized or EzraKlein.com. Get tickets to all of those events. I would love to see podcast fans there. Uh, but today's episode has been long in the making. I'm very sorry that the climate change series took this long to get back into gear. This was some scheduling mishaps on my part. Um, but the problem, the thing that had happened is that is really important to me at this point. We had sort of had the science conversation with Kate Marvel. We had an oceans conversation with Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. You should check both of those out. But it was important to me the next conversation was about decarbonization. Like what, what could we do, right? If we were actually going to muster the political will, how could we solve this problem? And, and, and what would it mean for our lives? Can we have the lives that many of us have come to expect and that people – whose countries and economies are developing and are, are, are rising that they want? Can we have that without destroying the planet? What would it look like? What would that transition look like? 
And I've been looking around a lot for somebody who I thought could really paint this picture in a clearer way um, and in a compelling way. And a name kept coming up, a, a guy I hadn't heard of before named Saul Griffith. And, it, you know, he's got he's got credentials. He's a MacArthur genius. Um, he's a CEO of Other Lab. He was the lead of Makani Power and Instructables. He's, he works in the energy analysis and invention spaces. Um, in, in fact, at Other Lab, they were commissioned by the Department of Energy to do the most granular look we have ever had at where energy in America comes from and goes. So having kind of pres- uh, presided over that, he is somebody who has a, a clear sense of the energy flows both into and then through the economy, maybe clearer than almost anybody else there is. Uh, and also he just, he came up because people would say, you've got to talk to this guy, Saul Griffith. He's just a genius on this stuff. Um, so I was excited that he was able to sit down with me. And I think this is a pretty, it, when I looked into him, the other thing that I should say sold me is he just had a series of pieces that were unusually clear about the path to decarbonization. And it helped me make sense of a debate where everybody seemed to be saying different things angrily that didn't actually conflict, but they were all fighting with each other. And that was very confusing because you'd look and you'd be like, well, can't you just both do that thing at the same time? And it seems in many cases the answer is yes. But my hope here is that this is a conversation that makes clear what people mean when they talk about decarbonizing the economy. That sounds very big and very unusual, but I think that Saul Griffith here is able to make it um, clear what that would mean. And also, I do want to push back on something that has become quite popular, uh, certainly in this discourse, which is that the only way to solve climate change, assuming we can solve it, is to settle for less, that it is all pain, that is all less, that is all a kind of discipline that whether or not it is spiritually worthwhile, whether or not people should do it, I don't think they are, at least not until we are way past the point of so much pain for the poorest people in the world that we have let a calamity uh, beyond imagining unfold. And so part of the hope here is to demystify decarbonization. Part of the hope here is also, as you will hear, to paint a picture, a vision of the future that doesn't suck, that is actually awesome and also better. Um, awesome and better are uh, good watchwords here. So I won't keep talking here. Let me get to the interview. Again, my email, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Here is Saul Griffith. Saul Griffith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So tell me how you actually model all the energy flowing through the U.S. economy. How's that a possible thing to do? It's not, not actually modeling. It's, it's literally just using all of the existing data sources. And the historical backstory to that is really interesting. The first time we had an energy crisis in the U.S., it was the oil crisis, landed on Richard Nixon's desk. And he said, well, you know, what is the problem and how do we solve it? And we did not have a, a Department of Energy at the, that, that time. We had the only people who were sort of concerned with energy was the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy. So it landed on their desk, figure out how to tell us where we are in terms of the energy economy. And they did the first survey that became what's called a Sankey energy flow diagram of how we produce all of our energy and how we use all of it, use all of our energy. And then in the 70s, where we were really concerned about energy for those reasons, um, that became an institutionalized process in the Energy Information Administration that was created, which is was created specifically to be independent of the Department of Energy. Also, at the same era, we created the EPA these things all began on Richard Nixon's desk, finished under Carter. Carter sometimes get the credit. Um, Carter also gets the credit for the first wear your sweaters speech, but actually Nixon made the first wear your sweaters efficiency speech. 
Um, so that that we've been collecting information on energy use and energy flows in the U.S. since that time. So the U.S. has the longest running and the best, highest resolution data set. And we measure energy flow if you produce energy, like if you're a coal producer or a natural gas producer or an oil producer, you... An online content maker. <laughs> or an online content maker. Uh, not quite. I don't know where you fit in the surveys. We'll, we'll figure that out. But all the energy companies are that produce energy are required to submit a monthly form that says this month we made 700 tons of coal this oh, month. So we actually survey it down at a pretty granular level. We survey it at a very granular level in five or six different domains. And so the work that we really did was pull all of that granular work together. Traditionally, we've only had this very top level view that is presented to uh, decision makers. And that top level view says how much oil, natural gas, coal, nuclear went into our system, how much of that became electricity, how much went to residences, how much went to commerce, how much went to industry, and how much went to transport. But within each of those, we now, um, there are surveys and measurements that actually go into very fine detail. So, you know, of all of our transportation, how many of those trips are to school? How many of those trips are to churches? How many of those trips are less than four miles? How many of those trips are more than 50 miles? And so if you collect all of that data, um, you can put it back into this sort of very comprehensive picture of energy flow. And you can, you know, so I know absurd details about the US energy economy. Like we 0.2% of all of our energy flow is used in slaughterhouses and abattoirs making our uh, meat. Huh. And, you know, lots and lots of arcane figures like that. So 0.1% of our energy is lighting for airport runways. You know, there's all these times. It's a full 0.1 is just lighting for airport it's runways. It's a little less for airport runways, but, you, you know, you, you yeah. can, in fact, get these numbers. Um, about a, around about 1% of our energy flow is in treating water uh, to clean it and then processing it for sewerage. So you, you can collect all of these numbers back together again and then build a big picture for the economy. And the utility of that process is it lets you see the connections between different um, between different things. So traditionally, you might think that the energy that goes into the food, uh, into food is really just the diesel on the farm, maybe the energy that goes into making fertilizers, but it's a, a lot more than that. It's the, then it's the transportation energy, it's the amount of energy in packaging all that food, which we can measure from different places in the economy. It's the amount of energy of people driving to work in the food industry, it's the amount of energy used in refrigeration to keep all that food cold. And if you add all those pieces up, you know, it's not one or two percent, but it's about fourteen or fifteen percent of all of energy use in some way gets the food from the farm to your table. Give me the big picture takeaways of doing this kind of energy tracking. What does it teach you about the truth of American energy usage and what needs to be done about it? Um, I'm not sure. It just gives you a ground truth from which you can then think, well, okay, this is how we do it today. This is the consequences of it is we produce all this carbon dioxide and these other problems. If we look at it this way, how can we decarbonize? For example, you can run those thought experiments. Maybe part of the answer to your question of why is it useful is just to get a historical perspective on why we are sort of stuck in solving climate change. Because climate change ultimately is mostly an energy problem. You know, 80% of the emissions are energy related. In the 1970s, the problem with producing energy was that we were importing 10 or 12% of our energy from foreign sources. So conceivably in the 70s, you could solve 
our energy crisis with cafe fuel standards to make cars more efficient, building code standards to make buildings more efficient, and appliance standards to make appliances more efficient. And that's where you get cafe standards and gold stars on washing machines from. But you can't efficiency your way to zero carbon, which is the energy problem that we have now. How do you decarbonize our energy system with giving us all of the luxuries of modern life that people sort of insist on? And we're still sort of using the, the language around um, the energy transition. It's about being more efficient, efficient this, efficient that. But that's really the 1970s model and mindset sort of being repeated. Whereas I think if you look at it and you're okay, how do we create all of the energy flows in this diagram, but do it in a way that doesn't produce carbon, you start to realize that it's not an efficiency game anymore. It's a transformation game. And you start to realize that that transformation game is a lot easier than a lot of people have come to think. The most likely way that we decarbonize is through electrifying a huge number of things. Electrifying. I want to stop you before we get sure. into this. Just what does decarbonizing mean? Decarbonizing means, to me, can mean a lot to different people, uh, giving us most of the things that we want in the modern world, maybe some more, um, without producing carbon dioxide and other um, climate-affecting gases as a byproduct. So I'm going to hold out the manufacturing dimension here. So if you have a like a car that runs on oil, you have a car that is carbon-intensive, and if you have a Tesla at least for driving it around, you have a decarbonized car. Is that basically the transition we're talking about? That's right. So we can also go into the manufacturing later if you yes. if you want, but um, the easiest way to imagine decarbonizing transportation is you electrify your car or you run your car on hydrogen produced by some renewable source. Um, you decarbonize your house by getting rid of your gas-powered stove and your gas-powered furnace and replacing it with electric heat pumps where the electricity is provided by wind or solar or nuclear. This is what I was going to ask because I've seen you write that the key, the biggest push on decarbonization would be electrifying everything or as much as we possibly can. But a lot of electricity right now is still carbon intensive. The great majority is still very carbon intensive. So for that to work, you both need to decarbonize the things and then decarbonize the electricity generation, correct? Absolutely. That seems like a big job. It is a big job, but we don't really have any choice. So I'm of the opinion, you know, we either do it sooner or later, and the sooner we do it, the better off we are. And if we leave it until later, we'll still have to do it. It'll just be harder and more expensive. But we shouldn't give up and we should still be telling the world how possible it is and how easy it is and and just what is required. So before we get into the sort of options and pathways we could take here, um, let me ask you about that question of choice. As you see the energy picture and as you see what we're looking at, what is the timeline that we have to act on look like to you? What is the, the, the level of movement and mobilization that we would need ideally? Like how quickly do we need to decarbonize? The news about Climate change itself is not getting better. The feedbacks that we're concerned about, the methane clathrates uh, melting, the tundra melting and releasing uh, methane as well, the polar ice caps melting that then become darker so that the water absorbs more sunlight, the loss of rainforests, the loss of coral reefs, all of these things are, I think they call them positive feedbacks, even though they have terribly negative consequences. Not great branding. Not great branding. Um, but they, 
the risks of all of those are sooner than we thought. There's actually a good review paper just this last week in Nature on that. And this is really why a lot of people think one and a half degrees is, is really where we should go. That's where IPCC landed in the last report. And realistically, to achieve a one and a half degree world, you know, there is this headline that we have 10 years, what that headline means, even though the headline also poorly branded, misunderstood, means we have about 10 years to reduce by half our carbon dioxide emissions um, and then until 2050 to re reduce the rest. But th even that does not take into account that existing machinery that burns fossil fuels will consume or produce carbon while it lives out its or amortizes out its lifetime. And in so doing, the existing machines on the planet today, the cars, the furnaces, the power plants, they already will emit enough carbon to take us over one and a half and close to two. So realistically, it's the 10-year headline is misleading. We have roughly zero years <laughs> to start making every choice correctly at the retirement of every piece of machinery that does something for humans to decarbonize its replacement. Right. So j just so I understand that. So if from here on out, every time anybody replaced anything, they replaced it with a purely decarbonized source because of how much is still just working its way through the system, how many energy inefficient heat pumps and cars and so on we have, you would basically be blowing past 1.5, um, even making every single decision correctly. We will go past 1.5, even making every single decision correctly starting today. All right. One of the reasons I want to have you on the show is you wrote this. <laughs> okay, let's start there. That's right. our framework. Um, <clears throat> Maybe we should we should reset the clock on the show and start with. Okay, it's hard. No, th this now, is it. So how do this you do is it? important. Um, and it, I, I wanted to sort of get the framework together so people can kind of see the the the, the picture with it. I'm just going to be totally honest. As I've been trying to figure this out, I have run into a series of fights in the climate change community that almost felt impossible to untangle. And so you wrote a piece that walked through sort of seven approaches people could take or want to take and the ways in which they might need to be done in concert that I found actually to be the single most helpful thing I read on the entire issue. So I actually want to just track the way you structured that piece so we can talk through them. And I think I'm going to start, um, I'm just going to start the way you did. So one of the options that could be a way forward here is all renewables all the time. Tell me what that would look like. Can we just have a purely renewable energy sector? You could provide um, the whole world with all sorts of energy supply from renewables. It's a lot of solar and it's a lot of wind. You could start with the, the thought experiment, well, how much energy does humanity use? We use a quantity that's around 10 to 20 terawatts. How much solar energy hits the earth? 40,000 terawatts. One number is much, much larger than the other. You can do it. Um, wind is a, you know, 1,000 terawatts. And so it's the second largest of the renewable resources. You can go through some of the other renewables just to sort of say, to have a sanity check. There's about 30 terawatts of geothermal energy. So you'd have to pretty much tap it all <laughs> to supply humanity. So only a small amount can come from there. Uh, people are excited about wave energy. If you tapped the energy in every single wave that hits every coastline on the world, every coastline, so that means there's surf and then there's a machine that takes all the energy out and then there's no surf, which would suck for me because I like surf. That would only be three terawatts. So wave can't get you there. Um, tidal power can't get you there. You'd have to burn pretty much everything that grows on the planet once a year to do it with 
biofuels. So biofuels can't supply all of the energy supply. So you return to renewables and the the most energy dense in terms of the amount of energy per square foot or square meter of land is solar. And it's the biggest resource. So it's probably going to anchor the, all the renewables all the time. There's been some good academic studies, like, for example, Jacobson at Stanford, although he got into his own brawls publicly because of that work. But I believe him. I don't believe the exact details. I think it could be a little bit different, but it is certainly possible to run the whole planet on renewables. And so the issue you come into there is land. Um, you you write in the piece that to power all of America on solar, for example, would require about a percentage point of all the land area in the country dedicated to solar collection, which on the one hand sounds like a lot. On the other hand, we do that for roads. Yeah. So a lot of people always tell you that there's this sort of 200 square mile patch in the desert that will power the whole of America with solar. That sounds great. Sounds great. It's not doesn't really help you as a visual understand. Um, you need to make one or two roadways next to every roadway fully covered with solar, and that's the amount of solar you need. So we dedicate about 1% of the land mass to roads and parking spaces, and, and so you'd need to do two more of those. But that thought experiment isn't, isn't crazy. The amount of the physical environment we've already changed with roads, car parks, buildings, houses, etc., cetera, uh, is enough to provide half and maybe all via solar. So if we just covered everything that humans have already made that's pointing up with solar, you you do get enough. So what's the problem here? What are the obstacles to having a singularly all renewables energy structure? So all renewables is a little bit harder than some of the other options um, in that there's a winter problem. There's less sunlight in the winter. Fortunately, in the winter, we drive less. So we use a little bit less total energy in the winter than in the summer. But we do like heat in the winter um, because it's cold, especially in the northern parts. And storing enough energy from the summer to use in the winter for heating is difficult. So batteries are good for storing things for 24, 48 hours, but they're not very cost-effective storing things for six months. You could use biofuels to store. You could use summer solar and wind to make hydrogen that you use in the winter. But all of those things add cost. So part of the hard problem for renewables is spreading the, the summer-winter uh, storage problem um, and, to a lesser extent, the day-night storage problem. And then there's the the land problem. I mean, I want to hold on the question of the roads for a second because, on the one hand, you can, you can read that really both ways. On the one hand, it seems crazy when you hear it. You need everything we've given to roads and parking spots. Look how many there are. And on the other hand, well, we've given that much to roads and parking spots, so we can clearly do things of that nature. But the problem is you need to do it very quickly, which is not how roads and parking spots emerged. And you need to do it in some kind of centralized way. There's some tension between... We, we built the, the, the national highway system in a matter of decades and, and shorter. It, the, this thing is can be done quickly. And I contend that it can easily be done. Uh, and it can be done in a decade. And we are just sort of lacking the footsteps and the go-getting attitude that... America had in the early 20th century. Somewhere around 1980, you all got amnesia for your ambition. Um, but this is uh, completely doable. So if you were a king, is this what we would do? Uh, if you were a king or a sane president, you would fight a wartime effort and rally around this, and you would do things that amount to changing U.S. manufacturing so we can do it, um, providing the correct incentives, the correct financing methods that enable this stuff to roll out. And the analogy was 
is the the wartime effort known as the arsenal of democracy you know so uh, hitler marches into france the brits get kicked out lose it lose their battle there churchill's in a panic hitler's on the rise france and england don't even know how to make the weapons to fight the war calls roosevelt says we're screwed roosevelt calls uh detroit says who knows how to make guns, bullets, tanks, airplanes. Everyone's like, well, we've made two airplanes in the last five years for the military. And he's like, well, we need 300,000. And in the course of four years, we made 300,000 airplanes. We made all the bullets, all the guns, not just for the American war, but for all of the allies. So you need an effort that big. And with an effort that big, you could turn it around and actually hit that as close to that one and a half degree target as we can get, but it needs that kind of wartime mentality uh, and wartime effort. Is that true for the global picture too? I mean, one can imagine that America, given its resources, could change its direction very fast if it chose to, if it had the will, if we had a political system that was amenable to that. But obviously, climate change is a global problem. You have India, China, et cetera. I think it's not only true globally, but it's necessary, meaning you need America to act that large and just in the way that it produced materials for all of the allies, um, you know, it's going to be the five or six big manufacturing economies. It's going to be America, China, South Korea, Japan, producing, you know, Germany producing uh, uh, the lion's share of the, it used to be called war materials. It might be called decarbonizing materials this time. It used to be bullets. Now it's batteries, (laughs) you know, it used to be tanks. Now it's electric vehicles. Um, but you know those economies will probably produce the majority, and I think if once America, once Germany, uh, once China are all acting sort of in unison on this effort, the rest of the world sort of gets dragged along. All right, let's move to option two here, which is nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. And I will say as a setup that I find the science of climate change quite easy to understand compared to the deep enmity that exists between the renewables people and the nuclear people. And I don't fully understand why people are so angry at each other about nuclear. So can you explain to me the nuclear debate? I don't know that I can explain to you the nuclear debate. And I do share your, like, how on earth did it become this polarized? Um, But I think, you know, given that I had to read a huge amount of history from sort of 1960 to 1980 to understand what we know about energy, you, you get dragged into a lot of the nuclear debate. Pre-70s, you know, the reason we had the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, they are the committee that made the statement, uh, electricity will be too cheap to meter, and they were the origin of all the optimism about nuclear. Um, But then, you know, Silent Spring happened, Three Mile Island happened. I think that all of those things put a lot of fear. Then there was the the anti-nuclear protesting. All of this in my part of, because I grew up in the Southern Hemisphere, this manifested as France testing in the Pacific and lots of anti-nuclear sentiment because of mostly the weapon side of nuclear. Uh, and then we had some um, very well-meaning people, I think, on the energy side wanting to clean it up, like Amory Lovins, who were very strongly anti-nuclear. And all of those conversations sort of have sort of led to, yeah, like you said, deep energy. There's, there's a war, it appears, between the pro-nuclear and the non-nuclear people. I'm agnostic on nuclear. I think it's inevitably going to be part of the mix. I think it makes solving climate change a lot easier to have at least some. 
But even with that mild position, the very pro new, I was, you know, embroiled in fights on both sides of this aisle in the last week. Nicholas Negroponte told me I was a fool and the only solution was nuclear and it had to be at giant scale. And then I had other friends from the green side here be like, how dare you cross party lines and suggest that we need any nuclear at all. Um, Can you explain to me the Nicholas Negroponte side of this? Because that's actually the part I understand where the anti-nuclear sentiment came about historically and culturally and to some degree even scientifically. And I understand the view that, of course, we need nuclear as part of the mix. It provides a double-digit part of our electricity now. The idea that you're going to undo that somehow when we need to move this fast is very strange. I don't quite understand the view that like nuclear is the answer, given how hard these things are to build, what the politics of them look like. What are the, and I've tried, by the way, I've like listened to the people and looked at it. When people say, when you write nuclear, nuclear, nuclear as a standalone option, what would just doing that look like? What is just the nuclear path forward? Well, right now today, we would go with light water reactors. That's what we know how to do. We haven't got generation four and the new nuclear concepts approved. So we, but we, so we would go with the existing technologies. They come in one gigawatt reactor sizes. We'd need 10,000 of those globally. I find it a little hard to imagine how we're going to put it in a lot of countries where we don't consider them safe enough and secure enough to handle and have nuclear power. So maybe we then have the nuclear housed in neighboring countries and we ship the electricity over the state lines. Um, so you, you could scale up and you could build that infrastructure. There's nothing impossible about that. The nuclear materials won't last for thousands of years, That we the uranium that we know exists. But, you know, that buys us hundreds of years. Hopefully you then, in that hundreds of years, you figure out how to do fusion. But the real problem with that idea is I don't think it's politically feasible to do nuclear at that scale. It certainly doesn't look like it's the cheapest form of energy. Um, that seems like the key to me. It, as far as I can tell, it's not enough cheaper to justify the political fight it would cause. Like, if it's much cheaper, I could understand the emphasis on it. But given that it doesn't look like it's much cheaper, it seems confusing. The debate about nuclear, a lot of it is about the cost. So Amory Lovins and others are on the side that nuclear is too expensive and always will be. And people can produce studies that say the nuclear, the minimum cost of generation is 10 cents a kilowatt hour, and that doesn't even account for all the security that you have to put around the facilities. And around the waste streams, um, but, you know, I visit a few nuclear facilities. I'm very impressed with them. When you go, you ask the grid operators that are running these nuclear facilities. They're like, you know, this is the cheapest, most reliable electricity on our grid. It routinely is one and a half or two cents a kilowatt hour. And so which one of these statements is true? Probably the answer is in the middle. Um, and then the other question is, well, why is nuclear expensive? And part of it is it's it's self-imposed. Half of the cost of nuclear is the interest rate on the loan you have to take while you wait to get the plant approved through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is a long, long process. Uh, and then we still have these notions that you have to trace every single bolt back to the mine where it came from and know the alloy, et cetera. So we, we artificially increase the price of every pound of concrete and every stainless steel bolt in that nuclear power plant by a factor of five or more. So, you know, as just as a straight up engineer looking at it, the nuclear power plants aren't hugely complicated machines. We should be able to make them cheaper if we just got rid of the regulatory and the some of the ways, you know, the way you'd standardize parts has changed in the last 50 years. So I think we could achieve the same or even higher safety without adding that cost to all of the components. Um, I don't think nuclear has to be hugely expensive, 
but you know, on the other hand, it's not just the cost of generation. I think the average cost of transmission of electricity in the UA US is now 7.8 cents per kilowatt hour. So even if it's generated for free, it costs you around about 8 cents to get it from the plant, nuclear plant to your doorstep. That's higher than the cost of solar electricity on your rooftop in Australia or Mexico today. So we already have existence proof that even if the nuclear is free, just the transmission costs are much, much higher than sort of this new distributed model of generating electricity where you do it on rooftops, there's no distribution cost. And in the countries that have sort of deregulated the utility and the solar markets and lowered the cost of installation, it routinely can produce electricity after financing it, you know, six, seven cents a kilowatt hour. We should probably talk about that for a minute because it's something we didn't cover in our renewables discussion, which is the all renewables world imagines a quite big shift to decentralized electricity generation that we don't have now. We have this utilities model. There's a lot of transmission costs. Can you just talk a bit about what that means? Um, there's a lot of layers to that question and a lot of things we didn't cover in the renewables all the time answer. But we talked about that for like almost five minutes. Yeah. It's, We're not finished. Um, yeah. Energy is, you know, it's a big, big, hairy topic. So, you know, I have a, I started and work with a wonderful set of colleagues on a solar company called Sunfolding. We produce tracking machines that track the sun to make the solar cells face the sun all day, uh, we are routinely part of giant projects in the Central Valley and in other parts of America and the world where we are producing solar electricity at two or three cents a kilowatt hour at the end of that plant. Some of that two or three cent kilowatt hour electricity we sell to PG&E and they sell it back to me from my office in San Francisco at 23 cents a kilowatt hour with a transmission cost of 12 cents a kilowatt hour and a bill, the cost of billing alone is one or two cents per kilowatt hour, nearly as much as it costs to generate it. But that's pretty typical. Um, so the transmission cost of all renewables is hard if you put all the renewables at big centralized facilities like wind turbines offshore or wind turbines in mountains and, and solar out in the desert. Um, certainly the cheapest renewables is going to be the renewables that's very close to you, community renewables. So, you know, convenient thing is humans like living in houses and humans like driving in cars, cars like being near parking lots. So if you cover our roofs and our cars and our parking lots with solar, you get a long way there. And if you run the thought of experiment, what if we do everything in the American economy we do today, but we do it with electricity? Don't shrink your houses, don't shrink your cars, let everyone have their McMansions, everyone have their monster SUVs, but just electrify the whole thing. How much energy do we need? It turns out you only need about half of the amount of energy that we use today. That's how much more efficient electric, electric machines are than fossil fuel-based machines. At least half of that amount of energy you could produce conceivably on our buildings and over our car parks, um, maybe more. Uh, but it still means that the grid needs to grow, or the total amount of delivered electricity needs to grow three or four X. So it's, there's, there's no universe that's going to be all distributed renewables or all giant facilities in the desert. It's got to be both. The cost advantage goes to the distributed where you, you get rid of the transmission costs, but it, that's simply not going to be enough um, and doesn't have enough network effects to solve the intermittency problems. So the grid's got to grow a lot. We should do a lot of it locally, and that's the more that's the larger um, renewables all the way story. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? 
Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. All right. So let's go to number three, which is fossil fuels with massive carbon sequestration. There's this idea you could just keep doing what you're doing, but you're going to capture the carbon from the coal or whatever it might be. Right. How about that as an option? We don't really know how to do it. We certainly don't know how to do it cost effectively. And it sort of fails... Um, there will be people who complain about this argument, but it sort of fails the first sort of rule of thumb. You know, when you pull oil out of the ground, it doesn't have oxygen yet. That's what combustion is. When you burn fossil fuels, you're adding oxygen to it. So when you bring a liquid or a solid fossil fuel out of the ground and you burn it, it grows enormously in volume because it becomes a gas and it has all of these extra oxygens attached to it. So you then have to try and capture it all, which takes a huge amount of energy to do. Then you have to squeeze it down, which takes giant compressors that use a whole lot of energy to squeeze it down, and then you've got to pump it back in the holes that it came out of. But the problem is, in the meantime, it became four to five times larger. So, you know, you have to find places to stick it that weren't the holes that it came out from, which is why we have, you know, ideas that will just make giant bubbles of compressed carbon dioxide at the bottom of the ocean, where it hopefully will never leak. But um, it sort of doesn't pass the sanity litmus test to believe that all of that, anything at that scale won't leak that carbon dioxide back out. And we certainly run out of geological formations that are easy and cost effective to stick it back in. So this is sort of an idea pedal to perpetuate the status quo more than a realistic idea to actually do a fully decarbonized economy. So number four, which I do think operates in the back of a lot of our heads, um, is miracle technology saves the day. We get really good at direct air capture or fusion works out or something. We invent something in the way that we did for the green food revolution, which makes all this talk all of a sudden look like it never had to happen in the first place. Can we just pump a couple trillion into energy innovation and we'll get like a handheld something or other? You can't rule out fusion. You know, um, no one can point an equation that says it's impossible. It just might not be doable at a size scale smaller than the sun. (laughs) So can you do it in a coffee cup? We don't know yet. It's worth doing fusion. Um, It's worth looking at direct air capture, and there are a lot of people working on that. Um, But 
it is not, you know, this betting on the miracle technology is not commensurate with the timetable, and quite frankly, it's unnecessary. And I think this is a huge distraction, and we have too many loud voices and too many high-influence voices out there saying that we need a miracle. We can solve this with all the technologies that we have on the ground, and, you know, you're so far representing sort of these binary choices, these seven binary choices, but really what emerges from laying out this argument of these binary choices is not binary what are the things that you can do immediately that are no regrets policies that get you most of the way there while you wait for the miracle to make it easier in the future? Um, even if a miracle fusion technology emerged tomorrow, our chances of scaling it up and deploying it on the timeframe required are low. So you, you should be doing all of these other things anyway. Yeah, you and we'll, we will combine. This will be. This will not end in binary. But you have a nice line in in your discussion of that where you write that if we're planning the fifty years after the twenty crucial years immediately in front of us, then these miracle technologies are a healthy part of a sensible national research priority. But you just can't bet on them right now. Which one of the things that I think has been a problem in the discussion is that people don't think about these things as operating on different timelines. That you might have different solutions or be hoping for different solutions, but you can't. Like you can't ask the ones that might work in 50 years to be your answer tomorrow. We used to be really good. If you read the the sort of technocratic analysis in 1960 and 1970 as we grapple with these things the first time around, we used to think about things on century timescales. And there was public servants who did that. But we sort of have seemed to have lost that capacity in the present moment. Um, but, you know, you certainly, and I think this is the objection of the people who are pro the nuclear, 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 nuclear response. They, you know, the part of their reason is like to continue to grow healthy economies globally and to provide more equity and more resources so that Indians and Chinese don't have to live on such paucity of energy. We need nuclear. What they really mean is like they're so informed by the efficiency conversation that dominated environmentalism for forty years that sounds like we can't have more of anything and we have to wear hurt hair shirts and sacrifice, that they just don't want to imagine a future where that's true. So they intone lots and lots and lots and lots of nuclear so the total amount of energy can grow globally. I think because of the efficiency of electricity alone and the electrification of everything, you can give everyone a better lifestyle on that electrification path, whether it's renewables or nuclear, and then you can invest in the technologies that might become the miracle that give that much, much more energy 50 years out. But given that the the eye of the needle that we have to thread right here is trying to keep the temperatures under two degrees, try to prevent the horrible positive feedbacks of climate change, try, to, try not to let the global economy sort of run out of control as we deal with refugees and fights over war uh, and and food. You should be planning more about, okay, how do we get through this 10-year window while also placing the long-term bets on the miracles that can make a big difference on the 2200 timescale? Uh, I, we've already talked about this, including a bit in that answer. Your next one is deprivation and efficiency. So I just really want to pull something out here, which is there is a version of this argument that says the only way forward is less. And as I understand the argument you're making here and what you were just saying a second ago, that that is at least not something that is inherent in the engineering math, that you can look at the way we could electrify and other things and you can imagine a future of more that is also a future that is decarbonized, that I think that there is a convergence of a sort of long-running environmental thread of less growth. There's almost a moralistic dimension to it, that we've lived beyond our means and like here is the like the cosmic justice come for us. And that whether or not- Or, or as I paraphrase it, 
if we try really, really hard and we sacrifice nearly everything, the future will only suck slightly less than it would otherwise. Right. Yeah. That's And that's where we've been with environmentalism for 40, 50 years. Where I think, you know, I, I have a friend, Drew Endy at Stanford, he actually works on biomaterials. Uh, and I think he's put a phrase as well, you know, for the first time in human history, we have the technological capacity to supply a great quality of life to 10 billion people. But it's not clear that we have the political means to deploy that. So I, I side with him. I think we can provide more, we can do better. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a conversation about less. It can be, it, the, and I think this is a lot of the reason we're struggling to sell green new deals and everything is it, it doesn't, we, we haven't painted a picture of the future that is spectacular, that, that is, that is successful. Um, and I, I think there's just far too few people who actually, as including presidential candidates who believe that we can solve this problem and, and on average, everyone's life improves which I think is true, is possible. There's, it's just an engineering task at this point. It won't be true for a lot longer if we don't act because climate change will run away and then the cost of dealing with that will escape us. But we still have an opportunity briefly here to just engineer the solution and get the job done and improve our lives and, 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 uh, and make everything, you know, I don't, don't want to say more efficient, but make everything more effective. So that's actually a good bridge into your number six, which is apathy with geoengineering. I'm going to have an episode on geoengineering coming, but I want to put the question to you this way. I'm a politics guy, so I think a lot about political will and political institutions and global governance, and I don't understand anything in engineering, but I understand something in politics. When you tell me that we're in a position now where if we made every single decision right, we would still be going over 1.5. Well, I can tell you, and this is not going to be a shock, we're not going to make every single decision right for the next 10 years. We're not going to come close. We should at least try. We and, should try. And, and I, we I'm, can. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I wouldn't be doing this series if I didn't want to try. But one of the things that I hear in that is that if this is, if what's coming is as bad as we all think it is, then you don't want apathy with geoengineering, but you may need everything else you're saying with some geoengineering, at least to buy time. Right, the sort of, the, and this is an argument that um, Oliver Morden and others make, but that geoengineering is a way of not solving the problem, but of buying time as we solve the problem. I'm curious how you rate that. We need to tease out the difference between geoengineering, which is controlling sunlight in, mm -hmm. in, or somehow con artificially controlling the temperature, as as opposed to pulling carbon out of the air, which is also geoengineering, geo but it's a right. different thing. So. The geoengineering, which is, which is controlling the temperature through sulfurous dust, space mirrors, et cetera, you know, these are all interesting. We brainstorm these things in my office, and you can have quite a lot of fun playing armchair god and physicist. But they fail some pretty trivial tests. So part of the consequence of increasing carbon dioxide is the acidification of the ocean, which is leading to all sorts of problems, mm -hmm. including the coral reefs from. So it's a pretty naive thing to bet on managing the temperature while not managing the acidification of the oceans because you know although it's called planet earth i like the people who think it should be called planet ocean because it's two-thirds ocean and uh you know i'm pretty sure if we harm the oceans enough this is not going to play out well for humanity so i'm concerned that the geoengineering conversation loses some some of the details like that on the capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere you know i think you can be quite hopeful the largest material, humans deal with materials every day. Like we, we have tons of things in our life. If you think about what 
human, what material flows globally are the largest. The largest one is we move, you know, gigatons and gigatons and gigatons of dirt every year. That's called agriculture. Um, the second largest material flow we move is carbon dioxide. <laughs> so that's how profound it is. Uh, then the other things that we do a lot of is we move, you know, we do a lot with trees and, and paper and pulp, and we do a lot of things with concrete and cement. It's about, you know, half a ton of cement or a ton to a ton of cement for every person on the planet every year. That's amazing. But we could draw down. So we currently are putting 50 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere every year. Um, realistic estimates are we could draw down at least three and as many as five gigatons a year just by changing the way we make uh, concrete and cement um, and by managing forestry better. So I think those, those technologies where we are trapping carbon dioxide in, in physical solid materials that have a very long residence time in our economies uh, is totally sensible. And, you know, at the rate of three to five gigatons a year, if we do the other project to decarbonize in a decade or, or two decades as we could, over those two decades, if we're also deploying the, that sort of carbon sequestration in our material economy, you can take out a, enough to, to get us close to the one and a half degrees. You could add air capture on top of that and squeezing some into holes in the ground. But, you know, we still have a window where we can do it reasonably with the things that humans do reasonably, not requiring the heroics and the, the dangerous experiments. So the last thing on your list here is a carbon tax. And the way I would frame this is that everything we've talked about here are can be understood as a choice, right? Do we want to choose all renewables? Do we want to choose nuclear? Do we want to choose geoengineering and apathy? Carbon tax basically says, or at least the way it is often framed, is we don't need to make any choices. What we do is we price carbon and let the market make choices. Um, what's the problem with that? You know, in, in I have nothing wrong, and, and I get mis misconstrued on carbon tax all the time. I, th I think there's nothing wrong with a carbon tax or a carbon price. Both of these things are good. And certainly removing subsidies from fossil fuel industries is the first step along that the, sort of that sort of generic pathway. The problem with the carbon tax is it is a market incentive that can slowly transform a market. So if you go back to the state of play is we have to make every decision well now and we have to, every car that gets sold starting in 2020 needs to be electric, <laughs> you know, no more furnaces burning natural gas in homes starting in 2020. That's not solved with a market-based incentive like a carbon tax. Um, you don't get that speed of adoption. It'll take you 20 years to get a, to 100% adoption instead of three or four, right? So the World War II effort is like, we're going to do, we're going to mandate making 300,000 bombers by 1944, goddammit, and they did. So we need mandates to hit the climate targets that are reasonable, and a carbon tax just isn't commensurate with that. I still think you should implement a carbon tax because it helps you in the edge cases. It, you know, a, a carbon tax can be enough, or prices on carbon can be enough to switch the economics on the, on making the cement that's slightly more expensive today that absorbs carbon dioxide. It could make it cheaper, so you, it would have a big influence at the edges of the economy in agriculture, in in industry, etc but it's not nearly enough to solve the problem on the time frame required. And that's a good bridge into sort of where you end up on this, which is you're going to need to do some combination of a lot of these. You sort of say some combo of all renewables all the time with moderate nuclear, 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 hopefully some miracle technology down the road. A carbon tax would be a good idea. 
that it does seem to me that one problem in this conversation is the way everything feels binary and you just have these camps warring it out as opposed to if it's as big a problem as we think it is, you're probably going to need every single one of these at some level operating. I think you definitely need all of these things, but you can look at that list and and read that essay online and I think you start to see that the, the no the no guilt, no regrets solutions that you start deploying on today are pretty obvious and that's going very, very heavily on electrification renewables immediately and, and implementing some of these other things. But I don't think that's the uh, the only problem is is these religious debates. Oh, I, no, not at all. I actually think the biggest problem is we have not had anyone stand up and 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 espouse a vision for the future that 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 sounds like success. In the '60s, NASA actually hired artists to paint a picture of revolving space stations with humans living on them, um, which was essentially propaganda, convincing us that the irrational economic space program, economics of the space program, was worthwhile because we were going to have this glorious, better future in space. There's been no public agency and there's been no public intellectuals who've really espoused in common words how solving, you know, decarbonizing your lifestyle could improve your life or how, you know, if we embark on this, it's a giant success story for all of us. You know, apparently um, the household air quality is, is bad and a lot of infants who are struggling with respiratory problems is because we still burn natural gas inside homes. Right, so if you if we electrify our building stock with uh, high efficiency heat pumps and we eliminate those emissions in the homes, we're going to have these huge health quality improvements. We need a lot more of those stories. We need stories of success. You know, and we might laugh a little bit at some of the things Andrew Yang says, but I think he's sort of he's he's the closest to a visionary sometimes of the current presidential candidates when he says, you know what, there's no regrets when you own a, an electric vehicle. It's just a more fun car to drive. Um, we just don't have believability of a full set of solutions that gives us a better future yet. Whereas I think you can stand here now and you can not only paint that picture, but I can actually point to the fact that it doesn't exist all in one place yet, but the economics globally, we are at the tipping point and it's about to be much, much cheaper. So it's a bit of a, a the inverting the old William Gibson line that decarbonized future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. And let's, let's go exactly with that. So, um, Let's start with one of the key underpinnings. Solar is going to be probably the largest contributor in producing the energy, unless we get better nuclear and 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 change politics around nuclear quickly, which I, I think is unlikely. But if it is solar, there's um, let's let's talk about a sad fact. In America today, the cost of installing solar on your rooftop is about three dollars twenty a watt. After financing, that ends up being twenty five cent plus per kilowatt hour electricity. It's pretty expensive. A lot of that cost is merely the cost of advertising that it's about 60 or 70 cents per kilowatt hour is the cost of selling solar to you. Why is it expensive to sell solar to an American? Because you're trying to t tell someone to buy something that's more expensive than the other option. That's usually costs you a lot. Uh, a lot of the other costs are in soft costs like um, permitting and inspections. Australia, however, deregulated uh, the, the, the utility industry in the solar industry and then provided training programs to lower the cost of installation. And solar in Australia is going on roofs at $1.20 watt, which ends, ends up penciling at six or seven cents per kilowatt hour after financing. Cheaper than the distribution cost of average distribution cost of electricity in America. So there's 
a model in a country that's not so politically different, demographically different, economically different than America, where solar on your rooftop is the cheapest energy. So that, that is already true. In California now, due to the what we've been doing with electric cars, uh, you know, own the full in or cost of ownership of an electric car, and the AAA um, actually has confirmed this now. The lowest cost of ownership in in some categories of cars is electric vehicles. That's only going to be increasingly true as the cost of batteries continues to drop. So you know, you take Australian solar that's cheaper. You take American. Uh, or a Californian electric vehicle policy, which is already cheaper, and then uh, you know the high efficiency homes, and particularly uh, the heat pumps of northern Europe and Germany. You, that's how you electrify the the housing fleet. is is cost effective. So you take those three things and you start to look at that, um, and you can squint and you say, yeah, we actually the pieces exist somewhere in the world that are cost effective. Now, how do we put them together? How do we finance them? And then how do we scale up so that we're putting this into, you know, 100 million homes in the next decade, not only the 1 million wealthiest homes? Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So I want to pull this in a slightly different and more imaginary direction, which is I want to hold the financing to the side for a minute because we're going to talk about what that kind of mobilization will look like. And understanding financing as a clean energy technology is, I think, a, a leap that you've made in some talks I've heard you give that is important for other people to make. So let's say we're going to come back to that. But I don't just want to talk about this for a minute as, well, you can imagine it being cheaper in a couple of different ways. I want to talk about it in terms of well, you can imagine it actually being great in a couple of different ways. Like the underlying technologies are cool. And I've heard you, I mean, you know, you can compare a Tesla to some other cars, but radiant floor heating is a really cool technology that most people don't have. Um, actually having your roof create your electricity is neat. I have a, a Kia that's like a plug-in electric. Um, so it's not a very expensive car compared to cars out there. But I get to drive the first 24 miles, which is most of what I ever drive in a day, which mostly I don't drive that much. 
um, I get to drive that on electric. And it feels like I'm getting away with something. It's neat. You have, I know, built a house around some of these uh, uh, ideas and certainly see much more of them than I do. So just can you, from the technology side, just paint a picture of what it could be like to live in a decarbonized world? Uh, what, what are the ways in which it could not just, what are the ways in which it could be actually awesome, like a vision of the future people want to buy into? I, I think this is a great question. So how do you, you know, all of the politicians are pitching their climate plans from some top-down economic view of like, we'll decarbonize this industry by here. It all sounds very abstract. And no one has presented the Green New Deal from the kitchen table out, and which I think is your question. Yes. So what does it look like in my home? So um, instead of, you know, burning natural gas to make your coffee in the morning, um, you'll have an induction range which has high, much higher fidelity controls on it, can be programmed, will be able to you know, cook your coffee for you because you've programmed it to the night before in a way that's much easier than you can with a natural gas burner. The air quality in your home, you have an infant, you'll be concerned about this, will be higher because you, you're not actually, you don't have carbon monoxide, you won't have to have the carbon monoxide sensor in your home anymore because there won't be any fuels being burnt inside the home. Ours went off the other day, we had to call the fire department. It turned out that five beeps means it is out of batteries and four beeps means you're all going to die. So it's beeping five times, not I four. don't think at 2 a.m., which is the only time ours goes off, I can count four. Yes, I did not five. realize that it was going to be quite that close. And, and the number of times that we just super exciting. take it off the roof and stomp on it and try to make it stop beeping so we can go back to sleep makes me worry about the efficacy. So a world where we don't need to worry about carbon monoxide killing us. It's actually a... That's a improvement. That's great. That's, an, that's that's a straight up improvement. There'll be health quality improvements across the entire population as we improve indoor air quality. The um, majority of American homes, for historical reasons, are heated with forced air. Uh, that creates a lot of dust and other particulate matter, a lot of our allergies and other problems, and increase in asthma are due to the way we do do that. Got to constantly redo filters, which is annoying you forget to do. Yeah, constantly redo filters. It creates dust bunnies, the whole thing. When you go to, you know, the dust bunny free world is when we have radiant floor heating. So that's basically when you take warm water and the warm water flows around in your floor and the water, the the heat radiates up from the, the floor. Nearly everyone who's experienced this thinks it's far uh, superior. You don't get that dry mouth in the middle of the night from the forced air drying out your body and dehydrating you. It's just a nice, pleasant, warm heat. So, you know, you've you've had your induction stove, make better air quality, make your coffee. Your your feet have been warmed by your radiant floor heating. The car has been charged overnight by dispatchable renewables like wind. The rest of your house is powered by the solar on your roof that day. The your electricity, your total energy costs. I think we, you know, we ran the numbers grossly for Australia. If you did that package of electric vehicles, heat pumps, and rooftop solar in Australia today, you would save the Australian average Australian family about one to two thousand dollars a year. Um, you'd probably do something similar in America if we figure out the financing aspects. So there's more money in your pocket to enjoy the rest of your life. You've got this clean, quiet car that's. Um, easier, more reliable, higher torque, faster acceleration, all the things that are electric vehicles. As far as I can tell, there's no losses in that world. So I find it, it's such, you know, our failure on fixing climate change is almost just a rhetorical failure of imagination. Like we haven't been able to convince ourselves that it's going to be great. It's going to be great. One of the things you might hear there, if you're of a skeptical mind, is 
where are you actually hiding the ball? It's great to imagine everybody gets a Tesla and radiant floor heating, but that's expensive. I was thinking Chevy Bolt. I'm, I'm, I have much more vanilla taste. There you go. Um, two things about that that I, I, I want to move into here. One is that we've done things like this in the past. When we talk about wartime mobilization, somehow we paid for something that is arguably on a larger scale, given the speed at which we had to do it. And we did it. And the economy didn't get destroyed. And in fact, like, the longest prolonged period of growth in the American economy was a result of the investments we made and the magic money we invented to do it for World War II. We talk a lot about wartime mobilization, but I actually want to move to something you've talked about in other spaces, which is large-scale financing as a technology, that a lot of America's great innovations, like, for instance, why we have such a high rate of homeownership in this country or why we built such a great middle class that went to college, had to do with massive financing innovations. So what might that look like? Alert, alert, alert. This is the piece of the show where he asks a physicist to talk about economics and financing. But having <laughs> prefaced that, I actually think this is this is super interesting. So I, I'd taken recently to asking people, when do you think the modern car loan was invented? And when do you think the modern mortgage was invented? And you just ask people to pick a decade. People have no idea. And they think it's either thousands of years old or, or only 10 years old. Um, but it turns out, we invented the auto loan as it is today, roughly in the 1920s. Ford wouldn't, he was very quite religious, didn't believe in usury, which is interest rates. So you had to pay cash to walk out of the dealership with a Ford. People like to own things sooner than that, then they, they save up. So Alfred P. Sloan invented the modern car loan and GM, that's what propelled GM ahead of Ford and market share. And that sort of made me start thinking, and I, I, I've, I'm sure I'm not completely original in this, but like, you know, a mortgage or a car loan is like a time machine. It lets you own the future you want tomorrow today, provided we have the confidence that society will be stable enough that you can make back the payments. But we then invented the modern mortgage. So mortgages traditionally had balloon payments every year, or every two years, and you had to renegotiate them every year or two years up until, and that's why a huge number of people lost their homes in the original Great Depression um, because they defaulted because of the terms of those mortgages. We created something called the Federal Housing Authority in the Great Depression. Um, 25% of the people who were out of work were out of work because they were in the construction industry. No one was doing construction. And we invented Fannie Mae, which was a, a mechanism to guarantee local banks to inject money into the economy by providing loans uh, in the sh shape of mortgages. So we invented the modern 20, 25-year mortgage in the Great Depression. And honestly, without those two financial innovations... Um, I don't think any of the technical innovations of the 20th century would have mattered. Like if you if you just look at the fabric of American society and a lot of the Western countries that copied a lot of this, probably far more important, and I say this unfortunately as a technologist, than all of our magical technologies was the invention of these financing mechanisms that allowed them to be broadly, broadly adopted. And so, you know, when you think that it's only rel relatively recent history where we invented those finan fin financing mechanisms then why can't we invent a financing mechanism to make solar and make uh, make this sort of decarbonized future economic? Part of the problem today is that people are financing their solar with retail credit interest rates of 12%, and people are you know, financing cars at uh, similarly at, at retail rates, yet we allow fossil fuel companies to build their fossil fuel power plants with state-backed you know, 2 and 3% infrastructure loans. But if you think about the infrastructure of the future we've described today, it's the infrastructure of the 20th century was 
power lines and roads and sewerage systems uh, and central power plants. But in the infrastructure of the future, a huge amount of that infrastructure is in the home. It's the battery in the car. It's the thermal storage you can do in the heating systems. It's the solar cells on the roof. And they are going to be connected to the larger infrastructure. So why can't we give state-backed infrastructure? You know, I'm brainstorming out here, and I'm sure there's economic economists vomiting. But after they finish vomiting, I hope they sharpen their pencils and do the math because I think it works. But like, if we could provide utility-scale, state-sponsored infrastructure-type interest rates to finance the batteries in the electric vehicles and the solar on the roof, it starts to look like something that makes sense today. And in fact, you know, in, in certain markets like the Australian energy market where salt, rooftop solar is already so cheap, it already makes sense. The unique way that the Australian government can screw this up is that they have hugely exp- high tariffs on electric vehicles. So it, the, the economics get ruined because they're trying to protect an Australian auto industry that's non-existent. One of the things I want to add in here, um, you're having this conversation, it's focusing on America, this is a global problem, and that is all true. But as from everybody I talk to on this, while it's true we do not have the global governance structures that can allow us to sort of command and control our way out of this on a global scale, the single best thing we can do here is massive policies that so push forward the markets and the technologies that it actually makes it cheaper everywhere the way Germany did on wind and solar. And so things that would have a big enough effect that you would actually transform the American economy around this, the downstream effect of that for every other economy in the world, given what will become, what will be innovated to serve the American economy, what will become the sort of economies of scale around these things, that's actually what our global policy can be. To the extent we can have a global policy, it's probably not going to be things like the Paris Climate Accord, which none of those have worked yet. If any of those are going to work, it's going to be because we, along with other countries, the big manufacturing economies you've mentioned, make the technologies here cheap enough and invent the financing approaches that spread widely enough that others adopt them and those targets become something people can imagine hitting without so much pain. I think you just said what I was going to say. You should write the introduction of my book. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the exclamation point. You know, I'm here talking to you in an American recording studio to an American audience. And so it's, e- and the best energy data in the world is the American energy data set because of what Nixon did in the 70s. Um, not that thing that he did in the seventies. The other thing. <laughs> he did many things. Some of them were some of them were fun. Some of them were constructive. You know, yesterday I was talking to the New South Wales government in Australia about the subtle differences of how you would do this in Australia. And two weeks prior to that, I was talking to the energy minister in Kenya about how you know this type of thing would play out in Kenya. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out in every zip code. And what you can say about the world and the energy future is, you know, and it pertains to this idea that of the seven solutions that you made me go through. What is more similar about places now is their their local climate and their population density. It's really free, and I'll give you an example. Like if you covered all of Singapore with solar cells, that's not enough energy to power Singapore. There are countries in the world that can't do it on renewables, 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 because the population density and the energy intensity of their economies is so high. So they need nuclear, you know. New England in the winter in places where we have very high population density like Chicago and New York, it is a stretch of the imagination to easily do that on all renewables without some magical thousand mile electrical plug to Arizona solar cells or with a local nuclear plant. So the global policy is a nice North Star, but the thing that's going to matter is proving examples in local and regional economies. So I'm just as excited about 
the New South Wales, Wales government in Australia showing the way with an economics package and a technology package that makes it work. I'm excited about working, pushing that policy forward for California. California could win this race. It's not clear that Texas, weirdly, won't win. We need to run the experiments in a whole lot of different places, find out what the local regulations are that, that fix this problem. And um, it's, it's not just giant regulations that are the problem. It's also that we have 100 years of local regulations that it's making the problem harder. I actually want to hold on that for a minute. So is this is a point you make um, in some of your work that a, a huge part of the problem here is not technological. It's just inertia, not just political inertia, but what people are used to doing inertia, what we've already built inertia. I was talking to Leah Stokes, who's at UC Santa Barbara and is great, and she was saying to me that something that drives her nuts about the, de the decarbonization discussion is the folk theory that if things just become cheaper, they will get used that there's a lot that has to happen before something gets widely used, including the regulations changing, people getting used to them. Um, you were emailing me about just even local building codes and make it hard to put this stuff into practice, even in a place that imagines itself as very tech forward and energy efficient, like California or San Francisco. So could you talk a, just a bit about that? Like what stands in the way that is not technological, but the people don't really think about? You know, it's a, it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. We made well-meaning policy, local governments all over the world for a century, but we did it in a world that was powered by fossil fuels, so we have legacy legislations. I've just spent 18 months arguing to put solar on the roof of my office building in San Francisco. If we covered the 100% of the roof with solar, we would completely decarbonize my office, including electric vehicles for us to run errands. They won't allow us to do that because it's a historic building, uh, so we can only cover half of the roof, and there's all these other things. Um, you know, this is like, why is this historic building in conflict with that? Like the history shouldn't be in conflict with the future. And that's sort of one example. The more specific example in, in San Francisco that's even crazier is in, your, in the 1907 earthquake, most people's homes were lit with natural gas. So the light, you didn't have light switches with electricity, you had natural gas. And so after the earthquake, a lot of the fires were because we had natural gas fires in the homes because it was leaking. And as a result of that, we made legislation that was sensible that in natural gas powered home, you'd want to puncture holes in the roof uh, uh, to vent the natural gas buildup from the leaking pipes inside, which led to a four foot offset from every uh, roof edge on all sides of the building. If you take a four foot offset off all of the roof of a San Francisco lot, you take out most of the space that you could put solar to power um, a house. So. You know, we have that type of legacy legislation everywhere. Um, I could complete, I'm building a new house in San Francisco right now, which is an insane endeavor. It's taken seven years. You know, it shouldn't take seven years to build a new greenhouse in San Francisco. I'm still not allowed to build solar to the edges, even though there won't be any natural gas inside the house. Um, my house will be net zero energy, but they want me, because of the existing electrical codes, I have to have, I'm electrified everything in the house. So I'm planning for two electric vehicles, electric heating everywhere. And because of that, the way we rate electrical panels is on, imagine that you've turned everything in the house on, then your electrical panel has to take that load. But because I electrified everything, including all these high things, high load things, I need to install a 400 or 600 amp panel in the house. But I will never in the life of that house use 400 or 600 amps. I'll only ever use about 100. But I have to install this thing that's $20,000 instead of the $3,000 thing I need, et cetera, et cetera. Because, you know, we haven't yet imagined that you could have a panel that doesn't allow you to use 400 amps at once. 
It just has a simple rule set that says if you turn on the heat in the basement and your kid's playing electric guitar and your wife's in the hot tub, don't charge the electric car at that moment, right? And that small, tiny piece of logic, and I think we're pretty good at building little computers now, would prevent you from having to build this 400 amp connection to PG&E that I don't even need. So anyway, I can give you two little examples from my life, but we have this cruddy legislation in every zip code but in the country. But you're somebody who understands this stuff. You served on the San Francisco Council at some point, as yeah. I understand, about clean energy. So if it's hard for you to navigate, I mean, the effort it would take for somebody who doesn't know this stuff. You know well. how I feel about this? Like, everyone needs a job in solving climate change. And there's a lot of lawyers who tell me, at least, that they're concerned about climate change. I'm like, what can we do? I'm like, well, spend all your money on, because you earn too much, because I have to pay lawyers too much. Um, spend it all buying, electrifying your life, but actually donate some of your time to prosecuting and removing these laws that are in the way from the sensible things that would make a difference. So let's put the lawyers to work. There's a job for there. Even for lawyers, there's a job in the green economy. How do you think about the question of individual action versus collective action? I mean, obviously you're doing a lot to, to uh, make your house net energy zero, but I think a lot of people look at this, and even just hearing this conversation, the idea of trying to follow a path like that seems impossible. So what? how do you, on the one hand, take this stuff seriously in your own life without um, driving yourself crazy with what you can't do? Um, I remember the first time, 10 years ago, when I really, I had to be in my bonnet to try and live at the global average energy use of 2,000 watts and tried to enforce on my wife the discipline to do that and showed her how, you know, getting the the newspaper that she wanted delivered seven days a week was a huge energy thing. So we had to cut down our newspaper subscription to only Sundays and all this stuff. And I found out that even with my closest confidant, who I love and who I believe still loves me despite my obsessions, um, I couldn't change her on some issues. They were like, I will have my six-minute hot shower. <laughs> I will have the New York Times on Monday through Friday as well as Sunday. And so there was a limit. I think there's a giant limit to this idea that we can do it with individual consumer choices. And I think this is the other giant mistake of the 40 years of environmentalism. We think we're going to solve climate change with stainless steel water bottles and um, you know biodegradable T-shirts or something. And that's just not how it is. Of the carbon you produce and the energy you use, 90% of it is dictated by a very small number of decisions you make in your life where you live, where that place is relative to where you work and where you go to school and where you play, which dictates how much driving you do, what type of car you have, what the heating system in your house is, and what your your diet is. And I think once you start to realize that, you start to realize that in some respects, we would do ourselves all a favor if we stopped arguing for this individual action at every single consumer decision. So as you're standing there in the Whole Foods aisle or the Safeway aisle, you have incapacitating choices uh, but that's not going to solve climate change. What's going to solve climate change is we make the five or six big infrastructure decisions in our life well, and we fight for collective policies that enable us to put enough solar on our roof, that put in the charging stations so electric vehicles work for everyone everywhere. And if we solve it at that infrastructure level, we don't have to have incapacitating guilt as we go about living our green lives. It's just solved at the infrastructure level. So... I do believe in individual action, but I don't believe individual action is nearly up to the task here. We have to solve this at infrastructure level and we have to start thinking about the, not infrastructure in terms of roads and freeways, but the infrastructure of our own individual lives. We have to, to decarbonize that infrastructure. So that means 
that means your rooftop for solar, that means your vehicles, and that means your furnace and uh, how how well you're how electrifying the heat of your house. That feels like a good place to begin to wrap us. So let me ask you, is there something I should have asked you, but I didn't? Something that we didn't cover that is important? Um, we really didn't finish enough on the fact that it is possible. I, I, I don't know that we emphasized enough that we can solve this and there is precedent. And I think when I said, you know, normal market rules can't apply as dictated by the timescale that you have to solve this, people get scared because we have sort of 1980s era Reaganite and Thatcherite concerns about only the free market can do this. But America led the world in solving giant problems in the 20th century with non-market solutions. We've, you know, they did it multiple times. The Marshall Plan was not economic. The Arsenal of Democracy for World War II was not normal free market economics. Solutions to the Great Depression were not free market economics. The Apollo program, that's totally irrational, not free market economics. America, you know, despite its contemporary rhetoric, has led the world in changing the rules of markets to solve giant problems and then always reaped an enormous reward for doing so. And there is the opportunity right now, and I just wish we could get one of the presidential candidates. And I think, honestly, it wouldn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat. Let's have a Republican challenger that pitches on America will be better when we do this at scale with the uh, unique focus and effort that we had for World War II that put so many people into employment that we had to employ women for the first time. We changed employment demographics forever in the effort to solve um, World War II. And it could be the same and it could be the most embracing and employing so many people from all classes uh, in the effort to solve climate change that we could have the most equitable and the most healthy society that we've ever had. But we still, I think, have candidates that choke and they don't quite believe that that's possible. There's something in the psychology of mobilization here that I don't feel like I fully understand, but but seems disturbing to me that in almost every example you gave, that was generated by the threat we felt from a human other. Um, you know, war obviously being an example of that, but all the way up to we did the space race and we got a man to the moon because we were upset that the Soviets were going to do it first. I think sometimes about Donald Trump before he was president tweeting that global warming was a Chinese hoax. And think about how useful it would be if America just really believed global warming was a Chinese attack, because then we would do something about it in the same way that it was very useful for um, the environmental movement for a long time for energy independence to be a big watchword. For a long time, the idea was that the way you're going to get action on global warming is framing as energy independence from Saudi Arabia. But then we became relatively energy independent um, without fixing global warming. And so there's something in here. And it's one of the reasons I think it's important to have the the kind of more stupendous vision of the future that it's very hard um, to get people to feel threat from nature, despite the fact that it's very real. Let me let me riff on that for a second and and maybe even try to tie it together. So, you know, we're fighting a trade war with China right now. It's not necessarily insane. The reason we had the concern about the energy crisis in the 70s because was 10% of energy coming to America was foreign oil. More than 10% of energy coming to America today is energy embodied in goods we import mostly from China. And that's, you know, the energy we're bringing in in terms of toys we're buying it uh, from Amazon that are made in China is mostly powered by coal in China. In fact, 
you know, 3% of energy consumed in America estimates are, is Russian natural gas making Audis and Volkswagens and Ikea furniture in Western Europe that we're importing. And another 3% is South African and Australian coal making plastic in China that we're importing into America. So a huge war on the carbon embodied in those things would could be the resurgence of American manufacturing. That is an amazing, you know, Trump, that's a bipartisan Trump country. Every country win for America is coming up with the carbon-free manufactured goods solutions that are the answer to Russian natural gas and South African and Australian coal in China. But this, you know, you keep saying, but like, we don't have any choice to solve this problem. The, billion, no, my, the billionaires go to Mars and the hundred millionaires go to New Zealand. The rest of us have to stay and fight. So No, but that was actually my question. It wasn't a, we can't solve the problem or I'm being nihilistic about it. It was more, how do you make that vivid to people, right? Everything you said there is I'm on your, correct. Is, isn't Ezra Klein radio show how you make things This isn't vivid? even on the radio, man. Oh, no. Yeah, this is, you just download <laughs> so... this from the cloud. This is fully decarbonized or something. Okay, well, I'm, you know. But this is why, to me, actually, one of the most inspiring things I've heard from you is the financing vision, of all things. Because why not? Why couldn't it be the idea? Why couldn't it be a galvanizing, meaningful project of this era that we are going to both solve climate change, but also give people this ladder to a much better, cleaner life? I mean, it sounds a little goody-goody when we talk to it here. Air pollution is such a big fucking problem. It is such a big problem. Bad here every year. There's a great, by the way, if you're listening, there's a great Weeds Matt uh, Iglesias did interview probably two months ago now with um, somebody who studies air pollution. And just like the bottom line is every single year the science goes forward, we find out that air pollution at even smaller levels is even worse for you in more domains than we thought. So like there is a vision here of a much better world where also we're creating a lot of jobs in industries that are really important and are going to be the future. You were talking about moving from bullets to batteries. And the part I really agree with you on is that I think that there has been a huge failure of just imagining a vision here that actually inspires people, that makes people think that this is a purpose and this is a path to a better life. And I think it's a deep mistake. I don't think we're going to get a wartime mobilization, but that doesn't mean that we can't actually get a mobilization. We've done huge things to improve our lives before. We electrified a lot of this country, not off of great sources, but we built the roads we're talking about because we thought it'd be awesome to have roads. Like, we can do things sometimes because they would be cool. <laughs> yeah. And, like, this would be both solving a huge problem and actually a path to a, a better life and a better economic future. And I just think some of that some of that vision, and I'm not blaming anybody here, it's just, it just gets lost in the, in the terror, the correct terror. I, I would hazard a guess that part of the reason we haven't had that vision is because we made climate science about climate scientists. And I love climate scientists, many of them are my friends. They know a lot about, you know, cloud reflectivity and albedo and, uh, you know, about geochemical cycles and et cetera. But, you know, I don't know a single climate scientist who has a conversational relationship with infrastructure and home maintenance and car maintenance. And the story of success here is a story about the vanilla things in our lives that are like, you know, how do our cars and vehicles change? How does our homes change? How does our infrastructure change? And, and... That's how you make relatable stories of a vision for the future that we all want to live in. But we just haven't had any representatives because we gave the climate stick microphone talking piece to climate scientists to just scare you. Because that's literally the only conversation they're qualified to have with you about climate. They can't, they're not, you need engineers and infrastructure people. You need sewerage engineers and utility engineers 
to tell you this positive story. Yeah, we can do it. It'll be a lot of jobs. It'll be some hard work, but you know, hard work never killed anyone. It actually galvanizes nations. Let's do it. And I think we need that contractor eyes view almost uh, of of what success looks like. It, you know, if you think about what we have to do and the, the fact that the switch over to all of this new world that's going to be good and cleaner air and electrified for us, it's jobs attached to everyone's home and everyone's driveway. These are very hard to export jobs too. So these, it's going to be so much employment that's in every single zip code to fix all of our buildings and and, and all our infrastructure. It could be the an, an unbelievable redefining and another American century. This is why, as sort of odd as his last few years have become, I will on some level just always be an Elon Musk fan. Because I wish he had not spun out into having fights with people about being pedophiles and all Who the rest won? of it. Who, I can't remember. He, Who, he won, I think, okay. but he lost in truth. And in some ways, we all lost, I'm quite sure, from that one. But he was somebody and is somebody who in different ways has, I think, embodied and really believed in just this, it can be better future, right? That there's a version of this is just more awesome. And has, I think, if he had been able to keep a little bit more of it under control, could really become a spokesperson for that. I mean, he still is creating some of, I think, the signal products in this space. But we're just going to need a lot more people like that, a lot more people who both seem to grasp the scale of the problem but believe that the way you get out of it is a vision of a better future, not a vision of a worse one. Yeah, I don't know. Where, I don't want to know that I want to come down on where I sit on Elon. I think, you know, I'm a bit worried that his current product offerings look apocalyptic. And so he's, it's taking a dark turn. I guess that's right. The new truck is, is quite Mad Max. And, um, you know, quite honestly, goats and cars have done as much damage to the planet as carbon dioxide. Um, and so I'm not sure that, we'd like to double down on a car-based universe, which is sort of That's the, a fair point. the bet. But I do think we need more people saying positive things, showing that we 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 have a lot. I mean, they need to get a lot more airtime. But, you know, you, you're probably right. I think Elon is representative, the, the loudest representative of that, but he sort of stands almost alone. And we need many more visions for the future to, to complement his and fill in the big gaps um, to give us confidence that we can get there. Yeah, I mean, something that you sometimes hear from people, I just moved to this area about a year ago, and something that I've been hearing here before and I've heard a lot more since getting here is a lament among billionaire technologists that we've somehow lost a sci-fi imagination. I mean, Peter Thiel's associated with this, but a lot of people are. And you'll I think that's their, their own failure. I agree. That, <laughs> that's a little bit what I mean, that it's strange to me to hear it here among the people who should be responsible for it. You know, uh, we should be making surfboards out of fingernails, right? Your fingernails is this amazing material. Doesn't sound as awesome as I think you might think that sounds. Really? <laughs> there, oh, okay, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll start over. <laughs> no, we're keeping that in. Um, Anything else you'd like to make surfboards out of? <laughs> uh, surfboards are pretty toxic today, and we could make non-toxic fingernail surfboards. Cockroach <laughs> wings. What if I make them out of cockroach wings? Um, all right. Well, there goes that. That's way how, that's how you decarbonize the plastics industry. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you can build an argument that we should all fly everywhere slowly. Uh, in terms sort of energy use per mile. So, you know, I think we, I, I don't really buy into the, we're all going to fly these multi-copters, which are terrible aircraft that are terribly inefficient, which is everyone's trying to build these VTOL things. But like, you know, flying slowly in little fixed wing aircraft is, is not, it could be nearly as efficient as, as electric vehicles. 
So it turns out at about 60 or 70 miles an hour, it costs you less energy to fly than it does to drive. Huh. Sticking to the road costs you energy, so you may as well fly. So, you know, there it's not inconceivable that we don't get rid of all the scars in the landscape that are roads and we have a little bit more flying. Yeah, and then the other side of this, which I think connects to what you're saying, is I, I did a conversation with Paul Krugman just the other day, and he was saying that he thinks the economists screw this conversation up. Because oh, my God, get them all out of the room. <laughs> they're, 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 I, don't, I do have a job in the decarbonization for the lawyers, which is fixing legislation. I'm still struggling on what the economists do. Because they looked at this, and their models immediately said carbon tax. And so the entire way a solution was framed was we're going to tax something. We're going right. to price something. And I and I will say, like as a technocrat, like I believe in a carbon tax. I think we should price carbon, I think, for the reasons you said and the reasons others say. But between the sort of environmentalism of less and the economist telling you everything, all your energy is going to get more expensive, you just had a vision of pure pain, right? The conversation right. is just pure pain. And even putting aside fingernail surfboards and, um, and copters, you just don't, that doesn't need to be where we're going here, right? You can imagine a little bit like, I, in some ways, I find the, the vision of the uh, Federal Housing Administration and the GI Bill almost the most useful analogs here. Yeah. You can actually imagine a world where we're giving things to people, where we're, built, where we're building future industries. And in the same way, all that was an investment in the growth of an American middle class. Like, this is an investment in a planet that is livable in the future. And like, that can be a vision that is a positive vision, not just a negative one. Yeah, and I think the uh, you know a lot of the Green New Deals are being criticized because of they have this equity component that seems like how that seems unrelated to the actual task of decarbonization. But um, I, I think maybe you could even have that conversation more useful if you just make the realization that if we only decarbonize the richest five percent, we're still screwed. Like you have to make this an all-inclusive effort. And I think the best analogy we have for all-inclusive effort was, in fact, things like Fannie Mae and the Federal Housing Authority and, and making mortgages available to 70%, 80% of American families. Like, that's how you make it an all-inclusive effort where everyone wins and all the votes rise. So I think that sort of gets you around some of the difficult, fairly socialist-leaning versions of the equity piece where you're sort of mandating um, – sort of policies. But if you just have the realization that we just have to make, we have to figure out how to finance this and make the products cheap enough that it's all inclusive, then then that's how you solve the equity problem. All right. I think that's a good place to come to a close. So what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, David Graeber, 5,000 Year History of Debt, which is amazing, gives you a new relationship with money, makes you realize that mortgages are time machines and we can just invent money to get out of here as long as we have confidence that the future will be there on the other side. Um, so that's great. Uh, I think Freedom's Forge, which is about Arsenal of Democracy by, we're going to forget the name right now. We'll look, we'll put it in show notes. And um, I just read the Extinction Rebellion Handbook. I like how inclusive it is, how awfulless it is. It's sort of, I like, I'm interested in how that movement is shaping up. Um, I tried to read the Environmentalist Canon uh, last year. So I, it turns out there isn't one, and it's pretty spotty. I enjoyed Ishmael. I, I, Silent Spring, is it, it deserves its place in history because it's the only well-written book <laughs> that's environmentalist. The rest of them are just like pretty tedious. Um, history of American National Parks, which is a history of big ideas, uh, and, and conservation I think is really interesting. Saul Griffith, thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Ezra.
Thank you to Saul Griffith for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, we are going to have the next piece of the climate series is going to be the next episode, which is an amazing, really, really, really great conversation on geoengineering with Jane Flegel. So I think you'll all enjoy that. Um, as I mentioned at the top, if you want to add a question into the AMA, email me at EzraKleinShow at box.com. If you want to show up on the book tour or pre-order the book, uh, both are great, um, but one is better than none. <laughs> Go to whyrepolarized.com or EzraKlein.com. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Gelb for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.